It's great to be with you. I hope you liked my um, drawings there that I did just as we, that was me doing that live. Um, okay, if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 4. If you haven't, don't worry, it's going to come up on the screen and we're going to get in straight away. It's the second week of our series. And this is the story of Cain and Abel, if you know them. Uh, two sons of Adam and Eve, and this is what it says, Genesis 4, chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. I want to start by asking you a question. And uh, you can turn to the person next to you. I want you to ask, what is your, what is your least favorite television program? Okay? Have a quick chat with the person next to you, and I'm going to call you back. Okay, you can come back to me. Okay, you can come back. Now, I will, uh, I'll let you in on which is my least favorite, okay? This is the television program. That if I switch on the TV and it's on, I'm like, oh, no. That program is EastEnders. Okay. Not a big fan, sorry. Some of you. I don't know if that's like you agree with me or you love EastEnders. I don't know what that was, okay? Now, listen, if you love EastEnders, sorry. If you're from the East End, I'm really sorry. But EastEnders makes me think that the East End of London is a completely miserable place to live, right? It looks savagely awful, doesn't it? It's like everybody's miserable. They're always arguing. This person's getting together with this person. They shouldn't be together. Whenever they go out, everybody slams a door. Everybody's flogging secondhand stuff to everybody else. That's what they do in the East End. They're all down the market, apparently, all of them, or selling secondhand cars. I don't know. If that's the East End of London, I don't know. But that's what it looks like to me. And uh, this is the way my warped mind works. When I read Genesis 4, it reads to me like an episode of EastEnders. Because everything seems to be going wrong without the old Vic. That's not in Genesis 4. But apart from that, it's like everything is going wrong. And if you were here last week and Andrew opened up the series, he talked about Genesis meaning origins and how out of the, the book of Genesis you get the beginnings of all the big themes in humanity and throughout history and in the Bible. And one of them that gets birthed in chapter 3, which is the beginning of evil, the origin of sin... In Adam and Eve's kind of fall is, if you like, what this birth there is like fully grown in chapter 4. Yeah? That's what you see in chapter 4. 
Uh, and on one level, that is what chapter 4 is about. It is a demonstration and a warning to us, if you like, of what happens to our lives when it is corrupted and held by sin. That sin is both powerful and deceptive at the same time. Okay, now let's look at verse 6 together. This really illustrates it, I think. By this point, verse 6, Cain and Abel are you know, grown men. One of them works the land. One of them looks after animals. They both bring a sacrifice to God and... And God is happy with Abel's sacrifice, but not seemingly happy with Cain's. And Cain is angry. He's angry with his life. He's angry at Abel. He's angry at God, okay? And God comes to him in verse 6 and says this to him. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? God knows, by the way, but he's asking Cain the question. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, notes this, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God is warning Cain, be careful. Okay, sin is crouching. It wants to have you. It desires to have you. Now, that phrase, it desires, has family history for them. Because a generation earlier in chapter 3, God says, uses that same word talking to Eve. This is what God says in uh, chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he says this. This is the implications, the curse of the fall, of sin coming into the world. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire, same word, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So God says to Eve, part of The consequences of you sinning is now you're going to desire your husband. That's not talking about like a sexual desire. It's saying to Eve, when sin has the upper hand in your life, Eve, you are going to want to control and manipulate your husband. That's what it's saying. But it's also saying to Adam, when sin has the upper hand in you, you're going to want to dominate your wife. It's saying right at the beginning, there's this kind of relational tension now beginning. Eve, you're going to want to manipulate and control. Adam, when sin has the upper hand in you, you're going to want to dominate, physically dominate and bully your wife. And we see that in the world all around us and sometimes in our own lives as well. That's what it's saying. Now, the same word said to Eve is said to Cain. And yet with Cain, it's about sin. God says, Cain, sin is crouching and it it desires to have you. In other words, it wants to dominate you. It wants to have you. It wants to enslave you, Cain. Now, this is interesting, I think. Okay, the reason it's interesting is you think back a generation earlier as to the point at which Adam and Eve first sinned. What happened in that moment? What was really going on inside them? Well, what happens is this. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve and goes, did God really say you can't eat that? Did God really tell you that you shouldn't? Actually, do you know what? If you eat that, it, you know, God said to you, you're going to die. Actually, you're not going to die. Your eyes will be open. In fact, you're going to become like him. What's happening? Well, the serpent is basically raising the idea in Adam and Eve's mind that God is not completely trustworthy and he's not telling you the whole truth. Okay? That actually God is, God is not true to his word. I know God said that to you, but that's not really going to happen. I know God said you'll die, but you won't really die. In fact, your eyes are going to... In other words, it's going to be better. Because that's the other thing he's saying. Not only is God not completely trustworthy, but he's also saying, actually, God is, God's kind of keeping a whole bunch of good stuff from you. 
He's, he's, not, he's not letting you play the whole field. There's all these things you could have, and God's not telling you about it. I really wouldn't believe him. In fact, why don't you go for it and try and find out for yourself? And that is why sin is birth, and that's why we sin. We sin because somewhere inside us, we may not say this out loud, it's because we don't completely trust that God is who he says he is, that his promises are completely true. So when Jesus says, I've come to give you life in all its fullness, in other words, the best kind of life, again, I'm not sure I trust that. So we don't completely trust him. And at the same time, we kind of go, actually, I think God maybe, maybe is keeping things from me that I think would be good for me to have. So we sin when we say to God, you know, actually, just like Adam and Eve, I'm going to decide for myself, thank you very much. In fact, I'm going to step away from being the one who's been created. I want to be the creator now, and I want to decide for myself where the boundaries are and what were given to us as healthy boundaries by God suddenly feel like restrictions to us. So we kind of go, do you know what? I do believe in you, but actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to decide for myself when it comes to dating who I date and who I don't. Thank you. And when it comes to my money, I'll decide, thanks, who, what I give to and what I don't, because I'm not sure, God, that you're the best judge, actually, of what I should do with my money. And when it comes to sex, I will definitely decide if I want to have sex before marriage, or whether, even if I am in marriage, to have sex with different people, because I will decide for myself where the boundaries lay and where they don't. Thank you very much, God. I will be the judge, because I don't completely trust you. And also, by the way, I think I know better than you. That's right at the heart of what is happening. It's happening here. It happens in Adam and Eve. It happens in our own hearts. And what you find is this. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, in their bid for freedom, I'm going to throw the restrictions off. I'm going to be God myself. In their bid for freedom, what happens? They walk right into slavery. They don't get freedom at all. They get enslaved in something that they had no idea what they were playing with. And what you find in Genesis 3 and then in Genesis 4 with Cain and God speaking to Cain, what you find is one of the most powerful and scary things about sin is that sin lies to us. Sin does not deliver as advertised. There are fleeting pleasures, but it doesn't deliver you what you're looking for. That's why it's addictive. Because you can't get enough because it never does what you think it should do. God comes to Cain and says this, sin is crouching at your door. Why does he use the word crouching? Well, what happened? Sin crouches because sin wants you to think this is not a significant issue. Sin wants you to think it's not a problem. You can do this. It's not going to cause much damage. You can play with this. You can watch that. You can do that. No one's going to know. In fact, everybody else is doing it as well. And it crouches in order to make it look small. Why? So you will ignore the danger signals. I don't know if you've ever watched the Jason Bourne films. How many of you watched the trilogy? I love the Bourne trilogy. Okay, okay. Brilliant trilogy. One of the few trilogies where all three films are great. Yes? Do you know most trilogies? The first one's good. Second one's okay. Third one's awful. Yes? You know that? Which is why by the third one, they've had to get new actors because all the old actors are like, I'm not being in that film again. (laughs) Well, all three films are great. And Jason Bourne, I won't spoil the story for you, but no, I won't. Okay, he has this ability to walk into a room and work out in the room where all the danger signs are. You know, like he could just instantly case this joint and work out, yeah, problem here, problem there, problem there. And he can also kill everybody, okay, (laughs) with a look, okay? Right. Well, when, I, when our kids were really little, I realized when it came to looking after our children, I was Jason Bourne. <laughs> I don't mean to be like proud, but I don't mean like in a ninja, I'm going to kill you kind of way. But in a kind of like you walk somewhere and you inst- those of you who have small children, well, you'll be able to relate to this. You instantly work out what's dangerous and what isn't. So I remember being at a barbecue. We're in the garden and I'm instantly realized I'm going, 
Shed door's open, that looks dangerous. That gate door's open, I don't know, there's a, door, there's a road out there. The pond doesn't have a cover, the barbecue's hot, there's a four-year-old with a cricket bat chasing around after my kids, and their parents are not taking responsibility. There's a dodgy-looking man by the patio doors, and you just instantly work out where all the danger, you do. This is what you do, you're just alert, alert, alert. Okay. Amazingly how, when it comes to our own heart, how unalert we can be. And God comes to Cain and he goes, wake up, Cain. It's like sin is crouching. It's not in sin. It's crouching. And it wants to have you. And sometimes, sometimes God speaks to us. Even in the midst of moments like this, you'll know God is speaking to you because God is saying, wake up. In the story of Jonah who runs away from God, do you know when he runs? He gets on a boat, doesn't he? he? If you know this story, he runs away. Do you know what he does as soon as he gets on the boat? He falls asleep, doesn't he? That is what happens sometimes in our lives. We become completely numb to what we're doing and playing with. It's as if we are asleep. And then one day, sometimes when it is too late in the process, we wake up and we realize, what was I doing? Why was I flirting with that person at work? Why was I getting involved with that guy or that girl? What was I do- why, was I, why was I taking this money that wasn't mine? And inv- What was I doing? And suddenly you wake up. And God's coming to Cain. He's going, wake up, Cain. Don't mess. Don't play with fire. We have a, a, a dog. She's a Cocker Spaniel. If you know Cocker Spaniels, they're basically they're not renowned for being guard dogs. Okay? If anybody came into burgled our house, she'd like, come in. Help yourself. That's basically be our dog. Okay? Now, if my dog was in your kitchen one day and you came down in the morning, you came down into your kitchen, and my dog is crouching in your kitchen, You'd be thinking, well, first of all, you'd probably be thinking, what is Phil's dog doing in my kitchen? And then you'd probably think, because he took her for a walk and she just ran off again. But okay, but she's in your kitchen. If you see her crouching, you're not going to be worried because she's a cocker spaniel, right? She's not going to hurt anybody. If you came down once, downstairs one day and there was a lion crouching okay, in your kitchen, you're not turning your back on that thing, are you? Because lions don't stay crouched for very long. They want to have you, right? Well, sin is like a lion in our hearts that wants to keep telling you it's just a cocker spaniel. I'm not a big issue. I'm not, gonna, I'm, not, I'm not a problem. This isn't going to do any problem. Everybody's doing this. It's totally fine. And yet what you find is sin by nature wants to have you. It wants to master you. It wants to control you. It wants to ensnare you. It's a problem. And God is coming to Cain and saying it wants to spring. Careful, Cain, be careful, be careful, be careful. And sin is the issue which is at the heart of the difference between Cain and Abel's sacrifice. If you read that passage again, I don't know what you thought when we read it, but when, you read, when I read that through, I said, it seems so unfair. You know, you read the first bit, Cain brings a sacrifice, Abel brings a sacrifice, and it feels like God just picks a favorite. I like Abel more. I'm going to pick his sacrifice, and Cain, I'm not so happy with you. And you just feel, I can't see what the issue is. Like, why does God say yes to Abel, and I'm not happy with Cain, what you've brought? What is it? And on the surface, you think, I can't see anything. Nothing. In fact, the Bible doesn't give you, I mean, there's a little hint in verse 3, but effectively it gives you no real clue on the surface what the difference is between what they, he does and what he does. And that is the point. Because the issue is not on the surface. The issue about the sacrifice is not the scale of what Cain brings. The issue is about the heart that offers the sacrifice. That's what God is responding to. It's the heart that brings it. And that's why God responds Hebrews 11 looks back on this passage and gives us an insight 
into the issue with Cain's sacrifice and Abel's sacrifice. And this is what it says. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought to God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. You see, there's only two reasons to bring a sacrifice or an offering. Only two. Okay? One is in order to earn favor. I'm going to bring this offering. I'm going to bring this sacrifice. I'm going to give my money in order to persuade God to bless me. The other one is I'm going to bring an offering. I'm going to bring a sacrifice. I'm going to give this money, whatever it is, as a way of a response to God's favor. Out of all of his goodness, I'm going to give because I trust you. They can look exactly the same on the surface, but they come out of completely different roots. Now listen, Cain and Abel knew the family story. Adam and Eve would have told them. They know where sin came from, and they know in Genesis 3, God makes Eve a promise. She says, sin is starting now to corrupt the universe, but through your bloodline, Eve, there will come a day where one of your heirs will crush the serpent's head. That's what it says in chapter 3. Andrew talked about that. In other words, there will be a day when God, I will restore things and start to deal with what has started here. Now they knew, therefore, although their, their viewpoint on them was limited, they knew, in other words, there is a promise. God has promised to be good. God has promised out of his sheer kindness to deal with the issue that Adam and Eve has got everybody into from the start. There was a promise over them. Both Cain and Abel knew the promise. Cain, who is the older brother, who, by the way, looks a lot like the older brother in Luke 15, which is the story where Jesus talks about, well, you often call it the prodigal son, but two sons, one who goes away, one stays home. You know that story? And the one comes, squanders everything, comes back, and the one at home, who's the older brother, is not happy because he's stayed at home and he's worked really hard and look what I've done and I'm not coming to this party to celebrate my younger brother coming. I'm just not. He looks a lot like him. Cain has decided that he's going to trust in himself. He's going to bring an offering out of his own efforts to try and win favor with God, to try and demand from God a blessing. Cain is hoping to earn something from God by what he does and what he brings. Abel is the younger brother. His sacrifice may or may not be as impressive as Cain's. We don't know. But it is born out of a completely different heart. Abel brings an offering of faith, Hebrews tells us trusting that God is good, believing that God will fulfill his promise to deliver. Abel's not trying to win anything. He's simply responding. So I don't know if you gave today in the offering. This isn't a comment on whether you did or not, but there's two different ways of putting money in the bucket. One is you put money in the bucket because you feel like you ought to, and if I do, maybe God won't be angry with me, and maybe he'll be good to me. That's, that's basically an issue of works. You're saying, if I do this enough and I work hard enough, then maybe I'll placate you, and maybe, in fact, if I do a lot, you might be good to me. The other one is a way of saying to God, you know what? I believe that I've heard the promise. I believe you're good. Out of your goodness, I'm going to trust you that I can give you my money and I can trust you enough that even without the money, I'm going to be fine. Because I think you're going to be true to your promise that you're no man's debtor. The amounts of money could be the same, but the heart is completely different. One sacrifice, one offering comes out of works, one out of faith. 
One out of a heart of independence, one out of a heart of dependence, one out of a heart of pride, one out of a heart of surrender. And that's why it matters so much to God. And that's why God only accepts one and not the other, because the heart that says to God, I'll earn it, I'll, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to earn it, is basically a heart that says to God underneath, I don't need you. I don't need your grace, I don't need your mercy, because I'm going to get there by my own efforts. So effectively what you're saying, it may look well-meaning, but you're saying to God, I don't need you. God can't accept Cain's sacrifice and offering because Cain won't accept God. That's right at the heart of a life lived just at works, trying to earn, like trying to be impressive, trying to do your thing, trying to earn favor from God is basically a heart saying, I don't need your grace. Jesus tells a story, doesn't he, in the Gospels about a man who builds bigger and bigger barns. You know that story? Bigger barns, bigger barns, accumulate more, accumulate more. Lots of people read those stories and think, what's that about? Is that about materialism? At the end, God says, I'm going to take your life now. Gone. What good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your whole soul? What's he saying? He's saying that you never, by building bigger and bigger barns in your life, you will never get what you're really after. In fact, if you keep going down that route, you will never get the satisfaction that only God can give you. In fact, in Romans, it says all of creation has been subject to frustration. You know, what does that mean? It means that it's all set up to frustrate you. If you're going to try and look for money or careers or relationships to give you the thing your soul most needs, it's all going to frustrate you and disappoint you because the only one who can give you that is God. You have to put him central. Cain has decided, I'm going to build a bigger barn. And you know what? Cain ends up very angry and frustrated. And Genesis 4, amongst other things, is teaching us sin is deceptive. It's powerful, and sin will lead you down Cain's path and teach you that being independent from God is the best route. You get to choose for yourself. But actually, Genesis 4 is saying Cain's route leads you to anger and frustration and disappointment and hurt. That's where it goes. And yet Abel's route leads you into freedom and generosity and liberation, joy. And you have to choose. Sin is deceptive and will lead you this route. And maybe today God is coming to you like he comes to Cain and goes, wake up. Don't mess, don't play with fire. There's a better route. That's what one of the things that Genesis 4 is teaching us. Now, whilst this story gives us an insight into sin, it also gives us an insight into just who God, what God is like. Okay, So it reads in one sense like a disaster zone. But actually, if you read it properly, what you find is, There's a note and a theme of grace and mercy that starts to emerge all through chapter 4. You start to see a little bit of what God is like in the way that he treats the sinner. God captures Cain in the moment of sin, right? Just like Jesus captures a woman in the moment of adultery. How does God treat Cain? What happens? Okay, a few things I want you to note here. Verse 6 says this. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And then the Lord said to Cain, "Um, where is your brother Abel? Verse 9. I don't know, he replied. Verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Notice this. In the midst of his rebellion, okay, Cain is on the edge of murder. God pursues Cain. God comes after Cain. God pursues you and me in the midst of our rebellion. And when he gets to us, what does he do? Every time, what does God do with Cain? Does he come with a wagging finger? No, he, goes, he says, Cain, like, why are you so angry? Why, why is your face so downcast? God comes asking gracious 
questions. Where are you? Then Cain murders Abel, and then God comes to Cain again and says, where's your brother? He comes to ask another. God knows exactly where Abel is. But he comes asking questions, just like Genesis 3. Cain and Abel's dad, Adam, God comes in the garden, having Adam and Eve ascend. What does God do? Asks a question. Adam, where are you? God doesn't come to us asking questions because he doesn't know the answer. He comes to me and he comes to you asking a question because that is part of the process of him trying to draw you to respond. He's like, I want to give Cain a chance to respond, to reveal what he is, to take responsibility, to put his hand up, to walk into the light. Adam stepped out of the sin, stepped into the light. That's what God is doing. Where are you? Where's your heart? He wants to give us a chance to respond. Maybe today you sense God is asking you a question. Where are you? You may physically be sitting in here, but your heart might be a long way away. And God comes to you and goes, where are you? Where are you? I know you. This is not what I called you to. This is not the life I called you to. In that relationship, dealing in that way, the way you're living, that's not what I called you for. And God comes to you and wants to call you out. Yeah? He's literally, he's like, where are you, Cain? What's going on with Abel? What's happening? God questions us because he's graciously handling us. In fact, when you read the story on what you realize, God, called, God is merciful even to Cain when he doesn't repent. So you read the story on. Cain doesn't repent for killing his brother. He's not happy about the implications. So God says to Cain, you're going to have to leave. The soil's not going to kind of give you what you want, but you have to go. And Cain's really unhappy, but he's not, he's not remorseful. He doesn't repent. But God says to Cain, you can go but I will still protect you. And God marks Cain as he goes. You know, even in his rebellion, even after murder, even after God has graciously come after him two times, the third time God says, I'm going to send you, but I'm still going to mark you and I'm going to protect you. I felt as I prepared this message that God wanted me to say to some of you who may be your parents with older kids, okay? And some of your kids... Even this week, they are hurting you with the decisions they're making about how they live their life. And they may have known the Lord or experienced Jesus at some point in their life, but basically they've gone. And I felt God wanted to say to you that, I've, that he has marked them. That he's marked them. And, and I think when you're in that situation, your desire is to kind of like keep warning them and keep telling them they're doing the wrong thing and keep like wagging the finger. And I felt God say to them, I want you to know, I've marked them. I'll protect them. Your job is to love them. God marks Cain. God loves Cain. God is merciful to Cain. But God cannot accept Cain in that situation. That's the other thing you see about God. You see this incredible note of mercy and grace But you also see this theme of justice emerging, that God is not just a God of mercy, he's a God of justice. Cain doesn't repent. God has to send Cain away. Adam and Eve fall. God has to say, you have to leave. Verse 10 says this. God comes to Cain. Cain, what have you done? And then it says this. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. See, there's going to be another day coming one day when someone's blood cries out in a different way. But at this moment, he says, Abel, Cain, Abel's blood cries out from the ground. In other words, God's saying, I cannot ignore the cry of the injustice of what's happened. 
Something has happened, God said, and I cannot ignore it. I'm I'm a God of justice. I I hear it. It cries out to me. What has happened, Cain? I hear it. And what you're hearing and you're seeing is that God is a God of mercy and a God of justice. That there will be, there has to be, somebody has to be responsible, in other words. Justice has to be dealt out for that act and any other act. There must be a penalty. And what you realize as you read chapter 4 and you take the layers off, you realize this whole chapter is like a picture of our situation after sin enters the world in chapter 3 and before the cross in the, in the New Testament Jesus comes. It's a picture because what we have is we have sin that's crouching and enslaving us. And yet at the same time in our slavery to sin and our bid for freedom, we find slavery. Yet God comes after us in his mercy and wants to win us. But the problem is that God also has to resolve the issue of his justice. There must be a penalty for the sin that's been committed. And we need freeing from the kind of addictive power of sin. And you think, well, how does God's grace and his mercy and his justice meet? How will this happen? How will the issue of sin be resolved? Because the problem with chapter 4 is this. Chapter 3, there's a promise, through your heir, Eve, will come the deliverer. Okay? Chapter 3, there's going to be a promise. Through your heir, there'll be a deliverer who crushes the serpent's head. Well, as far as Eve is concerned, that's all died. Her firstborn, Cain, has had to go. He's a murderer. He's left. He's been sent away by God. Her secondborn, Abel, who you thought maybe he's the one through his line, maybe through where his first, her secondborn's been murdered by her first. So as far as she is concerned, the dream has died. Sometimes we get in situations, don't we, where we find in a season of our life, it's like the dream has totally died. What we felt God had promised to us about, we look at our situations and we just think it's just gone. I cannot see how God can do what he says in Romans 8 and somehow work things together for good. I don't see any good in this. It's like it's just died. It's just dark. And then you read the end of chapter 4 in Genesis and you see the birthing of hope. This is what it says at the end of chapter 4. Adam made love to Eve, his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. You see, for Eve, everything had died. And yet through Seth now, hope is birthed because it's through Seth that the bloodline will lead to Jesus. There's a a phrase in the middle of Psalm 112, which I love, where it says, even in the darkness, the light dawns for the upright. It's just, you need to read the whole psalm. It's just a fabulous psalm. Even in the darkness, the light dawns for the upright. Even when it's like everything's gone, somehow God is going to be true to this promise. I'm going to hold on. Sometimes that's where we have to be in our lives. It's literally like, God, I don't know how, but I am holding on. I'm going to hold on because I believe you are who you say you are, and therefore, and I am who I think I am, and therefore I can't see how this is going to work out, but I am holding on. On Eve has to hold on. How does sin get dealt with? How does the power of sin get broken and the penalty paid? How does God's mercy and justice meet? Where does it meet? It meets in Jesus on the cross. What's promised in Genesis 3 is fulfilled in Jesus at the cross. That's where love and mercy and justice meet. Where sin is broken and the addictive slavery and power of sin is broken. Hebrews 12 says this. 
You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of the righteous made perfect. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, just as Abel's blood cries out, Jesus' blood cries out to the Father. You see, we needed, we needed one like Cain, didn't we, who would face sin and temptation, but would master it rather than being mastered by it. And we needed one like Abel, whose blood would cry out to the Father, whose blood God couldn't ignore. But we needed one whose blood didn't just cry out for justice, but whose blood delivers justice for us. Whose blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood. Whose blood speaks of forgiveness and love and mercy. And that is exactly what happens at the cross. It's where God's justice is fully satisfied at the cross because of Jesus' death, and where it's where God's mercy is fully expressed. Where sin is broken, the power, the penalty is paid, the enslaving power of sin is broken, you can get free, in other words. And it happens at the cross. It means the worst of sinners can come home. Don't believe the lie that you're so far away and you've got such dark secrets you can't come back. That is exactly why Jesus went to the cross, because you can come back. It's a lie, it's not true. Okay? Oh, you can't come back. You're too bad. No, that is exactly the point. The point is we are so bad, Jesus had to come to the cross. All of us. So don't believe the lie, even in this moment. Okay, when they say, stand up, why don't you come forward? Don't believe the lie. It's not for you. It's absolutely for you. Even in the darkness, even in the midst of the tragedy, even in a family being ripped apart, hope is being birthed, and it can be birthed in your life as well. God pursues us so we can respond. I want to say to you, don't miss the moment with God. If he's speaking to you, don't harden your hearts. Don't miss it. Don't let it just go past. Don't miss it, okay? If he's speaking to you, treat it like something fragile and precious and significant and respond. Let's stand together. We're going to pray and the band can come up.